I am here to bring you readings from the book of Acts, 25th chapter, 13 through 27, and it reads, Now when some days have passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived in Caesarea and greeted Fetus. And then as they stayed there many days, Fetus laid Paul's case before the king and said, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the law laid out the case against him, asking, asking for the sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had the opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay. But then on the next day, took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Fetus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear them. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with military tribunes and prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Fetus, Paul was brought in, and Fetus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appeared to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him, therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. This is the word of the Lord. And now turn it over to Pastor Dennis. Good morning, HTC downtown, HTC Chicago. Great to be with all of you. Thank you, musicians, for your music and for your heart. Give me Jesus. I heard him say a couple shout-outs uh, to those posting to the Better Streeterville. Yeah, shout-out to you. To Old Town Represents, to uh, Wicker Park East and Wicker Park West. And then also, I saw Baby Jack Oakley was uh, signing in today, so... Welcome again to Holy Trinity Church. Uh, 
Today is a, a, a bizarre day in some ways, scattered in groups across the city and streaming live, but it's also a, a day of mourning. And I say that because uh, I remember 20 years ago and one day ago like it was yesterday. Maybe you remember. If you're older than 25, then you probably remember where you were on those two days that are now etched into our psyche. 9-11. For me, I, uh, I had breakfast that morning with two of our elders uh, at a place called Lou Mitchell's on the west edge of the, of the loop in the city of Chicago. The breakfast must have been about 7.30 or so. It could have been a 7, but I remember very distinctly at one moment, one of the elders getting up and leaving for a moment. And this was a kind of unusual uh, morning at this Lou Mitchell's restaurant. This is a place on the, on the uh, near west side of the loop where they give you donuts when you walk in and milk duds when you leave. Uh, and they always serve you with uh, a little bit of fruit, and I don't know why anyone one would ever eat uh, dates, but they give you those as well. Well, on this day, Michael Jordan was return, contemplating returning to basketball. He had already retired once and then come back. He was 38 years old, and actually what they were doing is the... Uh, there were reporters in the restaurant, and they were going around and asking people, what do you think of Michael Jordan coming back? Well, one of the elders left the table, went downstairs, used the washroom, and as he comes back, I remember his face being kind of drawn, because at 7.46 a.m., a plane went into the North Tower, and one of the little television monitors had picked it up. And as you know, on that day, as both the towers fell, 2,996 people died. And uh, I remember then going to a friend's house and watching for the rest of the day, 8.03 Chicago time, the second plane hit the tower and we knew our world was changing forever. As then President Bush said recently, he said, when the first plane hit, we thought it was an accident. When the second plane hit, we thought we were under attack. When the third plane hit, we knew we were at war. But what a confusing day not to know who we were at war with or why or against. I still have a picture on my computer. I pulled it up last night of a young man named Jason Oswald. He was a member of Holy Trinity. Then he moved to New York. He was in one of those towers. When I pulled up the picture of him, the picture, ironically and tragically, is a picture of him standing in front of those now ghastly towers in New York. And 11 days later, I prayed at his funeral. Other people at HTC lost loved ones, good friend of mine, Lost her husband in that tragedy. And so, 20 years later, we mourn. And we weep. And we mourn the loss of those lives. But we also, we recognize the instability of our world if those towers could come crashing down. We recognize the strain that uncertainty puts upon us. If you think even just about the presidents that have come and gone in our lifetime, my lifetime, I can remember Carter and Reagan and the first Bush and 
the second Bush and Clinton and Obama and Trump and now Biden. So presidents come and go, and what I want to focus on today is, you might call it the transience of power. The transience or the transitions in our world. And part of my theme is this, is that even though empires rise and empires fall, even though kings are raised up and governors are pulled down, the Word of God abides forever. And that there is a king who will never cease being king. Psalm 46 is a great comfort. It's that one that says, The Lord is our refuge and our strength. And though the mountains should fall into the sea, yet God will be our refuge. And so I'm going to just ask you to bow with me in prayer as we pick up this theme of the transience of power and the foolishness of God. The transience of power and the foolishness of God. So will you pray for me? Our Father in heaven, your word says, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. And so today, Lord, we pray that you would give us a kind of stillness, of expectancy, of humility and need. Lord, as we come before you, so speak to us today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If I had to give a title to this message, it would really be the transience of power and the foolishness of God. In Acts 25, verses 13 to 27, God uses the foolishness of the message of the Apostle Paul to expose the foolishness of Festus as a governor and Agrippa and Bernice coming in all of their pomp and circumstances. What's actually happening in the passage is that the foolishness of the message of the resurrection is creating a dilemma for the leaders that are holding Paul, who is an innocent man. Our text opens today in verse 13 with the words, and I ask you to keep your text open if you would, but it opens this way. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. I don't, maybe it's happened to you before that you sit down to watch a movie with some people and you realize you missed part of the movie and so you're trying to catch up with what is happening. Uh, that's what it feels a little bit like when you get to verse 13 of Acts 25 because there's no explanation for who Agrippa is. There's no explanation for who Bernice is. It's a little bit like being at a party and somebody walks in the room and everyone greets the person, seems to know the person. You have no idea who this person is. Well, Agrippa and Bernice have just come into this party and they have now greeted Festus. I'm going to help you out so that you know who these people are a little bit. When you see the name Agrippa, that's actually, you could call him Herod Agrippa II. And he is the eighth and last member of the Herodian dynasty. We met his father, and you're familiar with his father, his great uncle, and his, grand, his great-grandfather, most likely. But if you have a Bible, I'm going to ask you to just turn over a couple, 13 chapters to the left to Acts chapter 12, verse 21, because you see a motif there of the contrast of Herod Agrippa's father with the power and glory of God. And the contrast sort of shows the foolishness of Herod. This is in Acts chapter uh, 
12 and verse 21. It says, On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. So here's a guy, and he comes and he dresses in purple, and there's a great throng that is gathered before him. And the people begin to shout as, as this Herod, Agrippa's father, this is Agrippa the first, actually, as the people begin to listen, they start to shout and they say, The voice of a God! Not of a man. The voice of a God. Not of a man. <laughs> and uh, then the next verse very quickly just says, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down. Because why? Because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. And then the next verse says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. And what Luke, who's the author of this book, is doing is he's showing how the word of God outlasts empires, outlasts kings, outlasts governors. And the foolishness of a king contrasted with the foolishness of the idea of a resurrected king, which is who Paul is preaching about. If you want to know who... Uh, Agrippa's great uncle is, you lean over to the person next to you at the dinner party and say, do you know anything about this person? And they share a little bit with you more. Yes, his great uncle is the one who took John the, John the Baptist's head off. So this is his family uh, mafia, so to speak. And his great-grandfather is Herod the Great, who tried to kill Jesus in the slaughter of the innocents, the massacre of the innocents in the nativity narrative of the Gospel of Matthew. And so part of the, the message of the New Testament, and really of the Old Testament, is this, that kings may come and go, and kings may totter and fall, but the kingdom of God remains. At this point in the book of Acts, the message is sort of very similar to the book of Daniel. And if you were to turn over to Daniel and uh, look at chapter 2 of Daniel, there's a vision that Daniel, uh, well, that Nebuchadnezzar has that Daniel interprets. And it's this big, it's this picture of this enormous statue that is, has a head of gold and chest and arms of silver and then a, a belly, a stomach, and thighs of brass and legs of iron. And then what happens in Nebuchadnezzar's dream is that a stone sort of comes out of, a, of the mountain, a, a stone that's cut not by human hands but by the force of God, and it hits, it hits the base of this statue, and the statue falls down. And why does it fall? It falls because a stone strikes it. But the meaning of the falling of this statue is that the empires of Babylon, which is the gold, and Media, Media Persia, which is the silver, and Greece and Rome, that they will all fall. And here's what the interpretation of the dream says. And in those days, those kings, sorry, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all of the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. This is the picture of what the Scriptures say the kingdom of Jesus is like. So when Paul begins to stand up, he's, he has been speaking and, and preaching of this idea of the resurrection 
and of the kingdom of God. But the, the governor and the king have absolutely no idea of what to do with them because, as the text shows, he is innocent. I don't know if you know what it's like uh, to be a part of a group project in high school or in college. There's always like that really responsible one. It's probably you. And then there's the slacker. And the slackers, like, they don't do their work, but everybody's grade depends upon the whole group doing what they're supposed to do. Well, there's a little of something in that text, because when Festus shows up on the scene, who's a governor of Judea and Samaria, he didn't put Paul in jail himself. He inherited Paul as a problem. And all we, the way that we know that, and this is the transition of these two governors, is chapter 24, verse 27. It says, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Fester, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So when Festus shows up, he doesn't really know what the background is. And he hasn't gotten a report, really, from Felix. All that he knows is that there's a guy left in prison for him. And so when he... When the king comes, when King Agrippa comes, in order to, to greet him, and he's visiting somebody that's called a procurator in uh, Caesarea at that time, Festus basically starts to pour out his heart to King Agrippa and explain to him that he has no idea what to do with the Apostle Paul. Verse 14, he says, he stayed there many days, and Festus laid Paul's case before the king. Picture him very befuddled. There's a man left in prison by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests of, and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. And I answered them, it's not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused gets to meet the accusers face to face. In other words, if you're going to put someone in jail, then at least let him face the charges of why he is going into jail. And the Apostle Paul has bounced from, this is his fifth trial in the book of Acts. He's bounced from this trial to that trial to that trial to another trial. And he's saying, look, at least make the charges clear. He's, his problems are about three or fourfold. He says, number one, I inherited this guy from somebody else. Number two, this is Festus. When I was in Jerusalem, they asked for a sentence, but they didn't tell me what it was for. And then I'm totally confused about the charges. In fact, here's what the charges are. The charge is a controversy that someone named Jesus was dead, and now Paul says he's alive. <laughs> That's the charge. So what do you do with somebody who now is locked up, and it's a favor of the Jews? He's totally confused on what to do. So Agrippa says, hey, Festus, let me help you out. This is sort of the responsible one coming in on the group project. And he says, I'd like to hear the man myself. And he says, tomorrow you will hear him. So then what happens, and that's like the first section and the first part of his dilemmas. He's got, Festus has inherited this person. He doesn't know what to do with him. He's frustrated. And then the second part is him bringing Paul now before King Agrippa. Somebody has said that we love getting dressed up, but it's a great excuse for a party. This is a red carpet moment here in the text. I think half the world saw Jessica Chastain and Oscar Isaac on the red carpet recently, and uh, there was this like slow-mo moment that 
like went viral or something. Jessica Chastain later said, I was looking straight ahead and he looks over at me and he kind of goes to give me a, a peck on the elbow and at the same time I'm going to give him a hug. And that's sort of the dramatic moment. Well, this is a red carpet moment that we see in the second half in verses 23 to 27. Here's what it says, verse 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. There's all the paparazzi are flashing their uh, cameras and lights are flashing. They enter this enormous audience hall and it's filled with all kinds of military people that are standing in their uh, military garb. The prominent men of the city are there and then the, at the command of Festus, Paul is brought in. And in this moment, this is like the emperor with no clothes because he has no charge to bring against Paul. So all these people begin to gather together and here's what he says. Festus says, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving of death. He's innocent. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. He's supposed to give a report. But he doesn't have any facts to write down in the report. He has no charges. So in this sort of group project, he says, therefore, I brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, a little bit of kissing up there, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. That's his goal. That's his dilemma. Not only is the dilemma that he has this innocent man who's been kept for him, but he has the dilemma that he's the one who has to write a report and he doesn't know why the man is held in jail and there's nothing that he's guilty of. So he says, for it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. What's he on trial for? Actually, nothing. <laughs> he's on trial for saying that Jesus was raised from the dead. There's an archetype in uh, Russian literature that's called the Holy Fool. And the Holy Fool, you can think of uh, Dostoevsky's book, The Idiot, or some of you have read uh, Brothers Karamazov, um, Alyosha. The, the Holy Fool is an innocent person, not innocent in the sense that they've never done anything wrong, but they're innocent in the sense that they're not captivated by the lies and the hypocrisy of the culture. And so what happens is that when the holy fool or the innocent fool is around other people, the hypocrisy of the culture is exposed. The, uh, in, in today's terminology... Sorry, I'm going to go there, but uh, some of you have been watching Ted Lasso. It's profane, uh, a, lot of, a lot of cursing. Um, but here's this, his, his, but his cheerfulness is contagious. <laughs> and what he is is this American football coach who knows absolutely nothing about Brit, uh, European football, comes over, and almost as a joke begins to coach uh, this, this team. It's... Uh, Ted Lasso is played, as you know, by Jason Sudeikis, 
And uh, he is the coach then of AFC, AFC Richmond. And he's not welcomed into the organization with open arms, but he's sort of like a combination uh, between, um, he describes himself as being a combination of Mr. Rogers and John Wooden, a great coach. Or to me, he's like, kind of like Barney Fife, Andy Griffith, and Mike Ditka, all like wrapped together somehow in one. He's like so cheerful all the time that people want to hate him, but they can't hate him. And he does these little acts of kindness, like brings short, shortbread to Rebecca every day. Why does he do it? But what's happening is through his sort of gleeful enthusiasm, he's exposing some of the flaws of the people that are around him, and those people are changing. Rebecca's conniving, and her jealousy and her anger is exposed. Jamie Tart's arrogance, he is humbled. He's a fool, so to speak, but his foolishness is, is contagious. Uh, Jason Sudeikis has said, you can't believe that I'm spending this long on Ted Lasso, I know, but Jason Sudeikis has said that the that really Ted Lasso is not a, um, a series or a show, it's a vibe. It's a vibe of those who are kind in a world that is so corrupted. The, the imagery in Russian literature of what's called the holy fool, it's actually not very present in Western literature. It's mainly present in Orthodox Christianity, this idea of people that are so foolish that they just give everything for Jesus. And that's what's happening to the Apostle Paul here is that the corruption of the Roman court, the hostility of the Jews, is being exposed by the Apostle Paul's seemingly innocence. We live in this, uh, in this day when it seems like so many things are toppling around us in our culture. Statues are actually toppling. Academia seems to be toppling by a, a kind of so, soft socialism. We live in this cancer, this cancel culture that's become like a cancer among us. There's this kind of terror that everything is toppling, and in the midst of that, in the midst of the toppling governors and the toppling kings, this message of freshness somehow comes through. It's as if sort of a, a charade, all these people are getting dressed up. But what does it really mean? To simply go through the motions of life if there's somebody who's innocent that was raised from the dead. And the Apostle Paul is going to stick to that story. But his story confounds the Sanhedrin. It confounds Felix. It confounds Festus. It confounds Agrippa in the same way that the Lord Jesus confounded Pontius Pilate. He had no, no idea what to do with Jesus. Here is this innocent man. And how does Jesus disarm the powers that be through humility through weakness, through dying, and through foolishness. It's like the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says that when he preaches, he preaches the foolishness of the cross 
that's folly to those who are perishing, but it exposes the foolishness of our world. Paul's hope's not in Felix, not in the Roman system of justice, not in Festus or Drusilla or Bernice, it's just in Jesus. And in this, in this world where it feels like so much is being lifted up, so much is falling down, many of us, many of us have been more shaped by our politics than we really have been by the political ruler whose name is Jesus. Let the one who is asserted to be alive be the one who shape. Don't let the Democrats shape you. Don't let the Republicans shape you. Don't let soft totalitarianism shape you. What, what the entire message of the Scripture is saying that is that there's only one kingdom that will outlast all kingdoms. And I'll just ask you, what are the, the towers that have fallen for you in your life? There's, there are real people 2,996 people who were lost in the towers in New York 20 years ago. But there are towers falling in each of our... I lost my mother-in-law two years ago. I have a family member that is hospitalized right now. And there are places that we run to hide that will never protect us. Here's what Proverbs 18.10 says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run to it and are safe. I want you to picture the images again of all the rubble and something comes out of the rubble. There's that famous photo where another tower emerges which is the tower of the cross. I bring this message before you because it's the message of the gospel, which is this, that an innocent man was on trial, a trial that he did not deserve, and the powerful aligned against him, kings aligned against him. But his message was that he was a king too, and that he was bringing a new kingdom, and that if we followed him, that his kingdom would outlast all other kingdoms, and that his innocence would become our own innocence. When that innocent man died upon a cross, his death was both a judgment of the powers and rulers and an opportunity of salvation. His judgment was a judgment of all of our pomp and our foolishness. So the message for today is kingdoms topple. But the innocent king lives on. And so let's weep the, the toppling of the towers of this world, but remember Psalm 46, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. The Lord of the hosts is with us, and He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Kings will come. And kings will go, but there is one resurrected king who will rule forever. May our hope be in him. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, we give you thanks that your word remains forever, that the kingdom that Jesus brought through his teaching and through his death and resurrection will never be toppled, 
May we hide in him who is our strong tower. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.